0: pick it up uh, where we left off, verse 35. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's maybe one in, Butte, pew, in the pew in front of you there. Just help yourself. Luke twelve thirty-five through 53, a call to faithfulness. If there's ever a time for... Sincere, born-again believers to be faithful is the day in which we live. We are living in a day of unfaithfulness. We know what that's all about. It's all about me, mine, what I can do for myself. We're going to look at what's required in faithfulness, and that's readiness. We're going to see that the faithful will be rewarded and When you are faithful and true to God, there's going to be conflict. And so uh, for those of you visiting the third Sunday of each month, we uh, observe communion. So at the end of the service here, we'll be uh, passing out the elements and we'll observe communion together as brothers and sisters before the Lord. So let me, let's pick it up. Will you stand with me as I read the first few verses of our text this morning? Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves like men who wait for their master, when he will return from the wedding, and when he comes and knocks, that they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. And surely I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat. And will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You may be seated. But the first thing we see here in regards to faithfulness and the idea of being ready is first, be yielded. Notice he says, let your waist be girded and your lamp's burning. The word let, a little three-little word that's very easy to overlook. It's in me, it means to be or to come and to go. Um, In other words, this can happen if you allow it. So what infers here is that you and I have a choice. We can let it happen, let it be, or not. So in simple words, we have to be yielded. We have been purchased out of the slave market of sin. We no longer are our own. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have surrendered our rights as servants. And now it's up to us to yield our will to him. Let your waist be girded. Girded is a good word. It means to be placed and remain in a place of expectancy. You are in that state of mind as if you're about to receive something. And that's a, a good thing. Uh, your, keep your lamps burning. Uh, that's, again, these are terms that uh, we're not really familiar with this. Uh, we walk into a room, we, what do we do? We just flip the switch. It was a a little bit more of a job to uh, have light uh, prior to the 20th century, right? You had to have lamps, oil lamps normally. Uh, you'd have to uh, get a match or have some source of fire to ignite the oil to illuminate the room. And it was a bigger deal back then. Now we have these conveniences. We hardly think anything about it. Uh, But the idea here is that our eyes do not function without light. We cannot see without light. There's a moral implication there as well, as we've talked about that in time past. Um, In regards to lamps, you remember in Exodus the children of Israel were required to provide the priesthood with pure olive oil so that they could keep the lamps in the holy place burning continuously. And this is the implication here. Keep your lamps burning continuously. We have a responsibility to not let distractions and the cares of this world snuff out our light. God wants us to keep our lamps burning, that inner light within the soul that we're aware of what's going on. He says not only be yielded in letting this happen and be girded, but also be like men waiting for their master. What does that mean when we say, guys say this to their sons, we say it to other guys, man up, you know, toughen up, all these masculine machismo words that we use to exhort one another as men. I know you ladies can't really relate to that, but that's okay. Um, No problem. It's the idea of don't let fear control your life. Uh, Have some courage. Uh, Put some vigor. Have some vigor in your life to do the right thing. Go down the right path, no matter if it's painful or not. Do the right thing. Be like men. You know, uh, the Philistines, and I believe this is in Samuel, when uh, near the end of his ministry there, early on, uh, in, in. Judges at the end of Judges there he, the Philistines were hearing this big rumble coming out of the camp of the Israelites and of course they were aware of the Ark of the Covenant and that was the throne of God the presence of God that went before them and every, all those nations around them would freak out because you know wow and the leaders of the Philistines tells their warriors to be like men don't be afraid. You know that's the idea. Whether it's the enemy or not, that's the exhortation. Don't let your fear control you. Do the right thing. Let's do what we have to do. You know, maybe in your life it's, well, the boss is coming back and he's going to be looking at stuff, so I better get things in order. I had a job that I was assigned, so I better get with it because um, he's going to look this over and that might mean uh, my job, if I don't have it done, you know, and so there's a, a responsibility that's at hand, and I take that to heart. Face the music, and then you know, in cases where there's circumstances are difficult, we have no control over them. What do we have to do? We have to be strong. We have to man up. But we just simply have to trust the Lord for the outcome. That's what it's talking about here. Just. Be like men. Now notice that he says here uh, uh, as well, when he will return from the wedding, and when he comes, when he knocks, that we may open to him. Those are interesting phrases. I want to get back to uh, when he returns from the wedding, but let's, so let's do the other two first, when he comes and when he knocks. Um, when he knocks first, he wants us to be able to respond immediately. Hold on, wait, it doesn't apply. You know, like when you're across the room and, uh, or in the bedroom or someplace and someone knocks on your front door, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you know, you got to run and get to the door. Well, it's almost as if the Lord is saying he wants you at the door ready and available for what he has for us to do. And I want to ask you a personal question. Are you open to the Lord? Does he have access to every part of your heart? The deepest recesses of your being. Are you there at that point in life where you have the door open and if Jesus would knock, he can come right on in? Or have you closed certain doors within your heart? You're not letting the Lord come down those, into those areas that he needs to come. You know, just because we are born again doesn't mean that all the corridors within our being have been sanctified and set apart. We've got baggage sometimes we bring in to the relationship with the Lord. Yes, we're forgiven. We're washed. We're cleansed. We're positionally in Christ and our salvation is secure. But it's our sanctification that needs to take place. And this is where we must open our heart, open ourselves up and allow God to come in to those darkened areas that have been damaged through sin, and God will do that. He's very gentle, he's very kind, he's not a bully, he's not harsh, but he is exacting, and he needs, he will only go where you allow him to go. Have you shut off some of those corridors within your heart? Are you open to the Lord? That's the challenge that's before us. It's our responsibility to deny the flesh, It's our responsibility to put to death those things in the old nature that we still have uh, that are contrary to the truth and contrary to the love of God. Failure to live a crucified life will leave us with these natural tendencies controlling our lives. It'll cause us to want to close the door and not let the Lord in where he needs to be. Sometimes we don't let the Lord into those corridors because of sin. And shame. Well, you know, I can't really go there because and so we it's easier for us to be like our first parents, is it not? Let's go run and hide in the bushes, you know. And so I think one of the things that we learn in life and this is what life is about, learning uh life experience, from life experiences and the biggest one is to know yourself. I think Socrates is the one who is credited with that maximum. Know yourself, know thyself. He didn't invent it, but it's a thing that starts with you and I understanding who we are and our propensities to one thing or another. And it's really the first thing uh, that we have to learn about in our journey to become more mature. We have to learn ourselves. And that's our responsibility, to know ourselves. We should Devote time. We shouldn't be ashamed of ourselves, but we should know that this is who we are, and and bring it to God. You know, He knows who we are. We might as well face who we are. You know, um, self-knowledge is is, as I said, the essence of maturity. It's important. Now, getting back to uh, when He returns, I I actually got hung up on this quite a bit earlier in the week. I just couldn't get away from it. You know, I used to really believe wholeheartedly in the pre-tribulation rapture. And guess what? I still do. You know, there's a lot of opinions about things, but I am in favor, and, and, and you're going to understand a little bit more why I am lean that way in a, in a minute here. Uh, but uh, I believe in just the natural reading of the Scriptures. If you just read through it without uh, any bias of one way or the other, which is not easy to do. If you've been taught a certain way initially out of the gate, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever tribe you have in your mind, it's hard not to put that aside. But you have to lay that lens down and try to be open. Because to be, on, if you're honest, and if we are honest with ourselves, there are holes in each of the arguments. It's not crystal clear. It's not what we would call a slam dunk. And uh, for those who think they've got it all wired, well, as Paul said, those who think they know really don't know. Because the more you know, the more you realize you there might be other options. God has made it objectively cryptic. Because why? We are in a battle within the unseen realm. He does things... Uh, mysteriously, if you will, because we are in a battle. There's a warfare going on. And so it's not crystal clear. And actually, if you think about it, it's wise. You know, if you know something is going to happen and you do have it all wired, what does that tend to do to us on the inside? We get complacent. But that tension of not knowing centers us. It brings us back to Complete trust in the Lord. And that's the position that God wants us to be. That's why we'll be watching and waiting and ready because there's that tension of we don't really know quite for sure. And that's not a bad place to be. That's a good place to be. We're found, uh, you know, like one of the most important things is we'll get here is in this area of faithfulness is is being ready he says you know how are we ready how how do we how do we stay ready well he says here by watching if you're watching you're going to be fully prepared and the idea of, of, of being open and ready and watching is that you're suitable for service that That if he knocks on your door and he puts something on your heart, you are ready to do it immediately no no wait I, i've got i 've got to do this first lord i mean i've have i mean i 've been to the woodshed a few times over that issue you know when the Lord asks you to do something, he expects you to do it, not put it off because if you say no to the Lord, then who 's really in charge does he do you know do we know better than he is this timing better than is our timing better than his timing? I mean, we should not uh, approach it that way. We need to be ready by watching. It's in- interesting because uh, watching is, is both active and it's also passive. It's uh, active in the sense that we're doing something. You know, the, the, the phrase that we try to live by, we do what we can with what we have, where God has placed us, that's active. But it's passive in the sense that if the Holy Spirit speaks to me, that passive means I'm being acted upon here. If if the Holy Spirit speaks to me to do something, because I'm already about doing something, but he interrupts me and he puts something else on my heart, I am free and ready to move in that direction immediately. And this is the idea. And we're ready not only by watching, but by paying attention to the details of life. Truth divides the light from the darkness, does it not? We know what's right. We know what's wrong. And we're to avoid the traps and pitfalls set by the enemy. So we've got to be paying attention. Uh, Satan doesn't want us to be ready. He wants us to be off guard. You know, uh, it tells us here that uh, in verse 39 about getting ripped off. I don't know about you, but I really, that's one of the things that I abhor. I've been, I've had a lot of things stolen. Well, not really a lot of things, but a few things in my life, equipment-wise, have been stolen. And nothing makes you madder, you know, than to have a thief come and take something that does belong to them so they can, you know, probably go pawn it off and buy drugs or something stupid, you know is because they're, they're too lazy to work for themselves. You know, you come with all these little arguments in your head, grumbling the whole time because you got ripped off. You weren't paying attention. You were thinking that way. Well, you know, you, you, you got to understand that there are people out there that aren't like you. <laughs> they take things that don't belong to them, right? Um, so uh, I don't want to be standing uh, at the judgment seat of Christ and uh, know that I wasn't ready. I mean, here I've read through the scriptures. I know what the Master requires. I don't want to be ashamed at His coming when I stand before Him at the Bemis seat. Now, as I said, I was sort of stuck on this <laughs> when He comes from the wedding. Now, you know, and so I, I'm a like I said, I'm a pre trip position guy, and let's just look compare this and it's not the only thing um, when it comes to pre-tribulation rapture there are a couple other foundational principles that that come uh, under are actually foundational for that belief one of them is that God will not judge the righteous with the wicked Abraham pulled that out of the Lord remember when he was about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah there in 18 Genesis 18 Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? Will he judge the righteous with the wicked? And what was God's answer? No. I cannot see the church going through the great tribulation and suffering the wrath of God. That doesn't make sense to me. We look at the marriage tradition uh, of the, in, within Judaism and it's broken down uh, into several stages, which I'll give you here. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. The bridegroom leaves the father's house and goes to the bride. This is Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth. He come to our house. He has he enters into what they call the kaduba, uh, the courtship, and they make a loyal commitment to one another uh, that involves being faithful. Uh, until the time of the marriage. And the Jewish bridegroom would negotiate with the, far, uh, the father for on the dowry. You know, here's the, the issues that have to do with the covenant that we're making. And uh, Jesus agreed to pay the price for you, the bride. Did he not? What's it going to cost? Well, the father says it's going to cost you your life. You're going to have to shed your blood for them. And so... Uh, Jesus paid that payment. He established the co- the uh, covenant with us, did he not? And according to the Jewish, they would be considered man and wife at that point. We are the bride of Christ now, are we not? Uh, the marriage has not been consummated yet, but that's coming. They would um, in that. Ceremony and making that covenant, they would go under the little tent thing there and have their little meeting, and they would drink a cup of wine um, and sort of seal the covenant, kind of like they're at the last supper. They shared that cup together. This is the cup of the new covenant that I'm making with you. you One of the other things that happened in this, and just prior to making the covenant, actually. A little bit of out of order, order here, but remembering that one of the things they would do is that they would go down to the river uh, in part of the ceremony, and they would be immersed in water. And this is a type of a ritual for cleansing. So there would be a, uh, they call it the Mizvah, uh, a spiritual cleansing would take place. Uh, remember in John 3 when Jesus I believe it's John 3 where Jesus went down to the river and and it was baptized by John and what it what was that all about to fulfill all righteousness so he's done his part in a spiritual cleansing ritual to make himself be ready as the groom of the bride and then those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are born again he asks us to be baptized and so it's beautiful pictures here the bride to be Is also baptized. The bridegroom would then leave the bride's home and return to his father's house for a period of time unknown. Uh, During this period of separation, the bride was to prepare herself for his return, and the time of his return would be be unknown. And um, John 14, 3 says... I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself that where I am, you may be also. Another reason for the pre-tribulation rapture, where is Jesus now? He's in heaven preparing a place for the bride. And so I believe he's going to come and get his bride and he's going to take us to his father's house, a place that he's prepared uh, for you and I it was always up to the Father to say when the house that was being prepared for the bride was ready. And so the Father at some point in time will say you've done enough here, Jesus, go get your bride. And then that will be a time in which he will come and take his bride to himself. He will capture his bride and bring us to his father's house, and what will be going on in heaven is a wedding party, I believe. If you read, again, the natural reading of the scriptures, if you read through chapter 19, the wedding feast is taking place before he breaks the eastern sky and splits the sky to his return. He's coming back in war on a white horse and blood will be flowing when he returns but the armies of heaven are what following him also on white horses how can the church come back with him if the church is not first with him so you can choose to believe what you want to believe just like i've made my choice And you know, if i'm wrong you know what still going to be with you on the other side. (laughs) And I will say this, do not let this break any kind of fellowship with others who have a different point of view than you. Don't call them heretics. Don't be rude and loving. It's not a matter of salvation. You're not going to lose your salvation if you believe one way or the other. It's not one of the essentials, right? It's important. I think it's important because of Christian living. I think the Doctrine of imminency, which they, some people struggle with, is important, meaning that Jesus could come at any moment. I think that's a good thing. I think that fear, in a sense, that the Lord could come, and it helps sort out some activities, doesn't it? Oh, if the Lord comes and I'm doing this, uh, that would not be a good scene. You know, That is a pure, the John tells us, first. John tells us that is a purifying doctrine, to realize that God could come at any moment. Now, let's just put it this way let's just say we're wrong doesn't matter you could get raptured at any time what i mean by that we don't know when our last hour is we know not the last day that we'll be here on the earth we need to be ready i'm not guaranteed tomorrow or the following day so i need to live in this readiness that jesus is talking about there are other things along with the rapture but i'll just leave you a couple verses that uh here that i think they're important the rapture uh, will happen quicker than you can blink your eye. First Corinthians fifteen fifty-two. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible, and we be, we shall be changed. You're not going to have time to think. Oh, I need to go back to get my. No, you won't want to go back. <laughs> There's nothing there for you. <laughs> right. Oh, the last trump. Oh, right. Up, up. up. That's Revelation 7. Well, hold on. Hold on. 1 Thessalonians 4 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. Not the trumpet of an angel. That's Revelation. This is the trumpet of God. This is Jesus. I'm coming to get my bride. For the dead in Christ will rise first. Then he, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And Thus we shall always be with the Lord. What a great day. Hasten that day, Lord. Amen. <laughs> and so the exhortation is, blessed are those servants who are found watching. We are told throughout Scripture to watch and to pray, to be ready. We don't have time to fool around with sin. We don't have time to fool around with disobedience and getting caught up in the world. He's going to come, as it says, First Thessalonians 5.2, 2 Peter 3.10. He will come as a thief in the night. He's coming in unawares, so we got to be ready. Remember the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins. I want to be one of the wise in that parable. And so Jesus moves on in verses 41 through 45 by Peter's question to him. Verse 41 says, Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two. And appoint him, his portion, with the unbelievers. Then that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone in whom much is given from much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. And so we see that faithfulness will be rewarded by God, and it's his idea of rewarding us. We don't do, that is not our motive. Oh, I wonder what I'm going to get in heaven for helping this little old lady across the street, you know. It's not why we help the little old lady across the street. She needs help. That's why we help her, Right. And we don't that's not how we think. We're, we just have been changed by God to be kind and to be generous and to be Godlike. What would Jesus do is not a bad question, right? And um, God's idea of rewarding is completely his idea and not ours. And He will give us what we deserve on that day, a reward for our faithfulness. A faithful and wise servant. Is that not what we want to be? Isn't that what we strive to be? Uh, and according to him, we will rule with him. I think there's something to storing our treasure in heaven. As we learned last week where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. And that's how we, dic- that's how we know uh, if we're on the right path. Where's our heart? Know thyself, right? we learn ourselves we we're honest with ourselves, we deal with ourselves. who else is going to do this i can 't fix you, you can't fix me. We can only deal with ourselves and this latter part of the text here forty five through uh, forty eight I just want you know i don't want to be in this category of being an unfaithful servant you're going to get punished now, I never liked getting spanked growing up as a kid. I can't imagine any of us. Oh, yeah, go ahead, beat me, Dad, you know. <laughs> I deserve a spanking. I did something you didn't know, so would you just please get it over with and spank me now? We never did that. You know, how many, Well, maybe some of you did, I don't know. Did you ever go up to your mom or your dad and, and confess your sin and then ask them to spank you because you know you deserved it? And I know that's an old Chinese proverb, you know, spank your kid once a day whether they need it or not. Because if you don't, you don't know why they need it, they do, you know, type of thing. Uh, No, it doesn't apply, right? Um, But this whole idea of, and this is another reason why I think uh, the pre-tribal rapture and the imminent return of Christ is such an important doctrine for the church. Because if we say in our heart, the Lord delays his coming, oh, they've been, you know, that's what the scoffers are saying, They've been saying that for generations. Jesus is coming back. You're right. Well, it doesn't change the fact that he's coming just because he hasn't come up to this point doesn't mean he's not coming. There's something else afoot. Begin to beat the male and female servants. So the Lord delays his coming. That's one thing that unfaithfulness uh, is guilty of. The second thing is abusive relationships. You know, this is something that's important. I think you learn this in your life experience, right? Learning yourself. Is that God is more, I believe God is more concerned how we treat one another than what we do and what we accomplish. You know, we may have several letters at the end of our name and we've accomplished something great from man 's perspective and that's good and well it 's a wonderful thing i'm glad we have people that are uh, highly trained in various areas. but how did you treat your wife how do you how do you treat your children your husband? How do we treat our relatives? See those are the things that are important. we have no right to be abusive uh, but if If we don't think the Lord's coming back and there's no accountability, does that really matter? So we don't really, you know, really care how we treat one another. It's just getting what I want to do done. And I don't have the mind of Christ at all. You know, the Bible tells us and exhorts us to take on the mind of Christ, does it not? And we're to be uh, like him, according to Philippians chapter 2. If there's any in view of the fact that we have comfort in Christ, love in Christ, we have fellowship of the Spirit, Paul says in verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love and of one accord and of one mind, that's unity, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each Deem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. This is the mind of Christ, to be others-centered. We are taught by the Holy Spirit to be considerate of other people. And so when we are being selfish and self-centered and abusive to other people, we are being unfaithful in the Lord's eyes. It, he who eats and drinks and becomes drunken, woo, what does that imply? It means you're living in the flesh, you're living after your fallen nature. We are called to crucify the old man now this is a sort of a it's a difficult thing to understand, and this is where a lot of Christians struggle and how do you deal with sin? How do you deal with the old nature? you know Paul used this analogy in Romans, as he uh, was chained up um, and chained there, and he knew some of the heinous things that the Romans would do to prisoners, one of which would be to chain someone who had a death sentence to a dead corpse and allow uh, that decaying corpse to slowly infect the living criminal and eventually take the life. Of that person. And so when Paul's writing his theology in Romans 6, 7, and 8 that had to deal with the old man, he cries out, Who shall loose me from this dead man? He's referring to his old nature with that analogy. Can you loose yourself from your old man? No, you cannot. But it is by faith, just like salvation is by faith. And by faith, we see ourselves nailed to the cross of Christ I am to nail my old man to the cross and die to self and let me say we all know that crucifixion is a slow painful death and so you will fight your flesh your fallen nature the rest of your days isn't that encouraging (laughs) no it's not but it's what we're called to do it's our life journey to put to death the old man who by faith do mortify the deeds of the body through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 8. That's the only way it can be done. You can't do it by doing a lot lot of good works or trying to be good and, and muster up all the strength to love that person that you just can't hardly handle. No, you can't. And when you come to the point of utter brokenness and to the end of yourself, that's when the Holy Spirit can empower you and I to really love people to really be other-centered, to be really like Jesus. You know, here's, you know, if if those words aren't enough to exhort us, let's just think about this for a minute. The Lord's going to judge unfaithful servants. Nobody gets gets away with anything. I'm pretty sure my kids got away with a few things as I was raising them. Because I know that when I was growing up, I got away with a number of things. But you know, that doesn't work in the kingdom, does it? God doesn't spoil his kids. Nobody gets away with anything. Everything is open and naked unto him whom we have to deal with, right? He sees all, and that should not be alarming or frightening. It should be comforting because we know that he loves us. He knows everything about us, and he still accepts us and receives us. He's merciful, he's kind, and he's gracious, but he's firm and he's exacting. There's that wonderful balance. He will judge the unfaithful servant for his cruel treatment of his brothers and sisters. On a day unexpected, he'll come to them. And in the, in the hour it says that they're not aware, he'll strike them with death. He'll punish them with eternal separation. Verse 47, he'll punish the negligent servant. Well, I didn't know what to, you know, do. I, 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 I kind of knew, but I, I got distracted. Get, so I don't know if that I fully understand this. He gets beat with, you know, stripes. I don't really know that I understand how that all going to work out. But I can tell you one thing. I never like getting spankings, and I surely don't want to get a spanking from the Lord. So God help me, right? God help us. He will also punish the ignorant. You know, saying, as I was about to say earlier, saying, I don't know, isn't going to work. You know, see if that, you know, it doesn't work when you get pulled over for speeding and you say something to the policeman. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, well, you know, that doesn't work. <laughs> I didn't know. How about grace? Well, no, I'm the law, and you broke it. You know, you can't plead ignorance. you you might be ignorant, but you're still going to get a, a few whacks, according to the scripture here. She'll be beaten with a few stripes. And what's the basic principle? He ends it here, there, in that section of verse 48. To whom much is given, much will be required. To whom little is forgiven, little will be required. Well, what's, what God requires of me isn't the same that he requires of you, per se. It's all personal. So what, what has God put on your plate? Just be faithful to it. He doesn't put more on our plate or our responsibility than we can handle. He gives us enough grace to handle whatever it might be. Now, sometimes we do get pressed beyond measure. There's no question about that. But there's still an amazing grace that's available to us. And lastly, in this text uh, this morning, if you are a faithful servant, you are going to have conflict. It's gonna happen. This is, again, one of these opposite of what we would think about Jesus and his person. Verse 49 says, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, Five in one house will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against the son, the son against the father, mother against the daughter, daughter against the mother, mother-in-law against the daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. Now again, this is one of those scriptures that's like I don't know that I fully grasp all of this. But let's just break it down a little bit. He's come to bring fire on the earth. Now we know fire is... Uh, equated with divine judgment and Jesus came to earth obviously to bring a new way of living and introduce a lot of concepts unheard of and never taught before but and the standards that he has based them on are truth absolute truth you know we either love people or we do not love them there's no well sort of no it's either one or the other and in this case, we are either for the Lord or we're against the Lord. It's, there is no neutral ground in that sense. And so, uh, truth is the thing that is l- the light that sifts out the darkness and sends the darkness away. There is no reason for indecision anymore when the truth is presented to a person. And so, it really does divide truth really does divide mankind into two different camps. We are either for the truth or we are against the truth, for God or against God. And then he makes a statement of a baptism to be baptized with. Well, we know baptism is identification. It's very similar to the reference that he used that he um, had a cup to drink uh, which is reference to his suffering and death. So he's identi- he's, his truth, the truth, is going to cause him to suffer. Jesus was put to death because he told the truth. And nobody's more hated, as we've learned. Aristotle said that no one's more hated than he who speaks the truth. And Jesus is the truth. It's personified in him. You know, it's really sad how this has played out uh, as we wrap up here. You know, I had a radical conversion, and I found the truth. The truth found me. And as I began to walk in it, you know, my mother and my family uh, wanted me to straighten up. I'm 18-year-old hellion not living uh, a good life, just a party animal and that kind of thing, just creating heartache in people's lives because of your selfishness. And when I had that radical conversion, I began to live for the Lord and l- begin to read the Bible and understand truth. Uh, after a, a year or so, it's kind of like, you know, you're taking this too far because my life in the radical conversion and transformation was undeniable. I was a completely different person. And now my life is convicting them because I'm no longer doing those things. And they know that there's things in their lives that they need to repent of and turn. And so there's now division. It wasn't me, but it was what I'm living for, what I'm standing for now. And so don't be surprised. And you're not surprised when people uh, shun you And there's division within the family. It's a sad thing. And um, I think we have to be careful uh, with our witness. Now, I wasn't always careful. (laughs) Out of my zeal uh, was zeal without knowledge, right? There was a lot of ignorance. But the conversion was genuine and and there was sincerity there. And that covers a lot. But one of the things to learn how to handle that and speak the truth in What? love and that's not something that uh, is learned always uh, very quickly uh, stay from, stay on the track of truth don't turn away from the truth stand for the truth but be loving you know jesus is a, an incredible example of this he always spoke the truth and he always spoke it in love now to be honest he's the only one that could uh, to uh, that could address the hypocrites He's the only one that could address the Pharisees and the Sadducees in that establishment. The disciples never confronted the Pharisees about their hypocrisy. Only God can deal with hypocrisy. And so just because you and I are of the truth doesn't mean we have the right to point out what we might perceive as the hypocrisy of others. And so um, that'll get you in trouble. (laughs) And you don't need to worry about that. God will take care of that. God is the judge. And we have to leave all judgment with him in that regard. But don't be surprised if your stance for the Lord causes friction. You don't want it to be that way. And, you, and learn how to be tactful and learn how to be careful. You know, sometimes you have to play your cards sort of close to the vest, and that's okay. You only have to speak when the Lord prompts you to speak uh, when it comes to the truth you know part of that is not casting our pearls before swine if you know people are not open and they're not receptive then just let your peace return to you remember that's what he told the disciples you preach the gospel you preach the message if it's received they have your peace if they reject you, you let your peace return to you and you keep it that's how it's supposed to be. you're not sinning but and you're not being a coward if you retain that and keep it because it's not being received. So there's lessons to learn with that. But this is a very difficult portion of Scripture, no doubt. Um, and it's the best I can do with it. I can't go any further than that. Let's take a few moments here now as we, if you guys will come back up, and we're going to close here with communion. The guys are going to come uh, and service the elements here. And I think this morning would be uh, a good thing for you to as you take the cup and you take the bread, that this is just between you and the Lord. This is a, a very personal thing. So as you receive the elements, you bow your head before the Lord and your heart, and you do your business with Him. You know uh, where you're at in your walk. Uh, maybe you do, maybe you're questioning some of that, but that's that's. Whatever And wherever you may be, you bring that to God. And you have a conversation with him. As the Bible says, we examine ourselves and we confess our faults and we know that the precious blood of Christ forgives us. And, that, and that's what we do in communion. We just examine our hearts. We ask for forgiveness. We ask him that as we drink his blood The cup and we take it that it's not only a cup of redemption, it's a cup of healing you see we need to be healed the effects of sin the effects of our fallen nature, our failures uh, they bring us down but this is why church and assembly of the saints coming for for the Lord, worshiping him enjoying communion this is how God heals us he transforms us worship is the most transforming thing that we could ever do I shared this Wednesday night. What happens in our worship is is God imparts eternal life to us. Everything that is created is sustained by God. And God infuses life into everything that worships him. The things that fail to worship God eventually disintegrate and die. So it's our choice. If we are found worshiping God, and this symbol and of remembrance of what he did for us to give us life is part of the process that God uses to bring healing to us. It's not a light thing. It's a very important thing. It's not just a cup of juice. It's just not a little wafer. It's what it represents. And so we take it very seriously. So you do business as I'm going to do business. Shall we pray? Father, as we do, take this cup. As we do, drink it down. As we take your body and as we take it into ourselves, we become one with you. And Lord, we want to be one with you.